I don't want to hear another word about hair or hairdressers. What's the opera about? It's, it's all about a, a hairdresser. I can't help it. I didn't write it. Hello and welcome to season four of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's 1930, and Catherine Coldiron joins us to discuss Monte Carlo. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. Hello, everyone. We are here talking about Monte Carlo with Catherine Coldiron, who you might know from such books as Junk Film, Why Bad Movies Matter, a dive into what you call uh, trash culture and bad cinema that is quite generous with a loving heart. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for coming on this podcast. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. And we are here discussing Ernst Lubitsch's second musical, Monte Carlo. Those of you who were here last week remember our discussion on Love Parade, starring Maurice Chevalier and Jenny McDonald. Jeanette's back. Maurice is gone and has been replaced with Jack Buchanan, character actor. Before we get into that, though, though, uh, I'd love to ask you, Catherine, your own kind of uh, relationship with Ernst Lubitsch. I was very surprised when I found out that you were doing such a deep dive on him, because if I was going to pick someone from that era in that space to do a deep dive on, it would be Billy Wilder, 100%. So it's interesting to me that you picked him, and it's interesting to me to learn more about him. All that said, I have enjoyed some of his films. I think I slightly prefer Preston Sturgis. And I hope that that will make for an interesting episode as opposed to Mm. a crappy episode. (laughs) Oh, it's all good. I always like to make sure that with all different kind of viewpoints on Lubitsch on this. But yeah, um, Monte Carlo is of Lubitsch's five existing musicals. Those being Love Parade, this, One Hour With You. Smiling Lieutenant and The Merry Widow. Monte Carlo is, I would say, like the, it's hard to say by far because we're talking about five relatively obscure films, but it's of these five films, which are in a canonically fairly forgotten in the Lubitsch canon, of which Lubitsch is a fairly forgotten director. This one is the most <laughs> forgottenest. Um, <laughs> and I chalk part of that up to, I think it is maybe by a hair the weakest of the five, but also because I think a lot of people's way into these films is Maurice Chevalier and Jeanette McDonald, that pairing, one or the other. Maurice probably having a bit more of a cultural footprint these days, which again, we are comparing the opposite of superlatives here in terms of the footprint. But it's a film that comes at an interesting time in Lubitsch's career because the big news is that he has just broken up with his screenwriter, uh, Hans Crowley, who has been with him his whole career. As we've alluded to in previous episodes, Hans ran away with Lubitsch's wife. Uh, (laughs) In 1930, there was a divorce. It's a whole sad story that I won't recount here. Scott Eiman recounts it very well in his book. But long story short, Lubitsch is out his main collaborator and into this kind of void. And so for this film, we have the writer Ernest Vida working with Lubitsch on the script. And I think I would say that, you know, this maybe isn't a a sterling example of their collaboration. And Vida is often written off in virtually everything I've seen written about him as slightly an empty suit. (laughs) Lubitsch's next 
big writing collaboration would be Samson Rafelson, who wouldn't come into the picture until the next pair of films, The Smiling Lieutenant and Broken Lullaby, which were written in the reverse order they were released in. So it gets a bit, the chronology gets confusing. What's the logline here? I should get to it. We have an early pre-code musical. This is the second of Lubitsch's kind of slightly parodic takes on the operetta form. You know, at this point, we have basically two dominant forms of musical in Hollywood, the operetta, and more, you know, far more commonly, the revue-style musical, right? You know, like Gold Diggers of 1933, musicals where all of the music is diegetic. It takes place on stage. The operetta style, which traditionally is much more self-serious and melodramatic, where all the music, you know, comes out of the characters expressing themselves. And here we have a musical where, you know, each musical number kind of extends from a need to kind of explicate character changes, right? Or plot turns, right? The first musical number is that very juvenile number where the jilted fiance, who, you know, we're supposed to kind of look down upon as this rather fey dandyish figure, you know, has a, the memorable line, um, uh, he's a simp, he's a simp, he's a simple hearted man. <laughs> I have a nasty temper, though I keep it in control. For after all, I really am a simple-hearted soul. He's a simp, he's a simp, he's a simple-hearted soul. It's actually not the first music. The first musical number is all of the wedding guests singing. was a really interesting number because the signs for the bride and groom are actually very reminiscent of title cards from silent films. And you can see a lot of silent film influence in this movie, very obviously. But that is a great example of how instead of the title cards existing in the silence, they're existing against music. And that happens later, too, where yes. there are a lot of silent film flourishes where the background is a song instead of the background being literally nothing. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that kind of silent film influence here, because I completely agree. You know, the way this film is staged really is reminiscent of his, of like that kind of mid 20s silent style that Lubitsch was told to get part of. There's a lot of that. And not just stylistically, but also the actors are clearly adapting themselves to sound film, the way that they stand and the way that they move their faces. Buchanan in particular, very much silent film influence. I also noticed that there's a lot of use of vertical space instead of horizontal space. And one is typical of sort of early Hollywood. And then as you move into sound films, it becomes more about medium shots mm-hmm. and less about kind of showing the people down here at the bottom and then the giant, you know, 1930s sets. So there's that. But it's interesting to me just because because it's so early, this is a great example of kind of what was promised was the movies talk now. Mm-hmm. Instead of completely transforming the way that films are made, let's just have them open their mouths and speak. <laughs> I think, too, we can see a lot of that early sound film almost, I would say, stiffness in the camera direction, right? You know, I mean, the Love Parade was entirely recorded live on stage, right? Mm-hmm. All the musical numbers, the audio quality reflects that. The big thing I'm noticing is the lack of camera movement. You know, there is a staginess to how the actors kind of play for the camera. You know, the classic two shot in this film is both kind of actors facing the camera almost, but turned towards each other with their heads. Mm-hmm. It's very presentational. And the camera, I think there's maybe like a half dozen camera moves in this whole movie. Yeah, it's not frequent. It does remind me a lot. I mean, one of the things that I've studied more carefully than other things about early film is the difference between Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and how Chaplin is basically making vaudeville Mm -hmm. and Keaton is making films. And this was a good example of vaudeville style filmmaking as opposed to using the full 
potential of film to tell your story. There was a little bit of that, the camera panning up from one hotel room to another, but there was a lot more of it in the Love Parade, I think. Even though I didn't like the Love Parade as much as I liked this, but I did think that it was a little bit more ambitious, technically. Monte Carlo is odd to me because, I mean, the Love Parade, if we compare that to Lubitsch's later silence, like it's especially Eternal Love, which again, Eternal Love is not a very good film, but the camera moves a lot in that. There are some very ambitious crane shots. And as soon as 1932, we'd have lots of ambitious shots in something like Trouble in Paradise, especially you know by 1934, he's moving all over the place in The Merry Widow. But this is kind of a brief interregnum of stasis between those two things. This film, yeah, I would agree is even more static and less visually ambitious than The Love Parade, with the one exception of that shot you point out, which I'm glad you pointed out because that is the first of what would become a motif in Lubitsch's films that pan or dolly or tilt Mm -hmm. from one balcony to the other. I think he would not necessarily improve on it, but the iconic version of that shot kind of appears in Trouble in Paradise where it goes laterally and vertically from one to the other. It's tremendously thrilling. Um, In this, it's a bit more utilitarian, but in the context of the film, you're like, oh my gosh, this is quite, especially because it's on a real set, it's on a model. You know, they're actually booming that camera from a pretty great height. And I'm curious, this is something that I don't altogether now, it's usually my place to say, do you realize how large cameras were in the 30s, 40s, 50s? But now I'm actually asking you, presumably because the Love Parade was made first, he had to deal with giant cameras that you can't move around very easily. And then in Monte Carlo, it's like he's switching back to, oh, it's it's too much. The cameras are too big. I can't move them very much. So like, let me make this static film. Yeah. And in, in this case, the, you know, the cameras are in these giant blimps in the Love Parade. They were in a soundproof booth. Um, but I think it's also no coincidence that the camera never really moves during musical numbers. Bobville. Yeah. But there is still a lot of dynamics Lubitsch creates from cutting from one thing to the other, I find. Like there is that wonderful scene where Jeanette is in a train. She's singing Beyond the Blue Horizon. And, you know, it cuts from her with the nice, beautifully projected rear moving background to the wide shot of the, all the farmers sing. That's a dynamic moment, even though the camera is essentially static the whole time. It's just on a moving train. I was interested in that moment because when I looked at the map, it seems like she's probably moving through either Italy or France, depending on where she started. And what sort of peasants are these supposed to be? Are we supposed (laughs) to take some kind of class lesson from this or they're just convenient? I don't know. It was interesting to me to look at that and think about how you could pick it apart in a more politically conscious movie. But then I did peek at your notes for this and you did seem to want to talk about class a little bit between the Count Duke situation. Yeah, there's the class and gender stuff in this film is really interesting. I mean, Lubitsch is the fertile ground for gender play. Going back to I don't want to be a man. But in this case, it's really tied in with class where you have Jack Buchanan, who is a very fey presence compared to Murray Chevalier, who is, he's very goofy, but I think he clearly is trying to project this like masculine, the kind of um, chauvinistic kind of thing in every movie he appears. But Jack Buchanan is a bit more like, he almost seems like a character actor you cast as like a British dandy. But in this case, he plays a count who is deliberately pretending to be a servant. And then that is contrasted with Jeanette McDonald, who in this case, she is a runaway 
Countess Bride, who has, you know, ruined her life, essentially lost all her money, but is desperately keeping up the appearance of having money. And so you have this kind of role, not role reversal, but self-imposed roles allow them to kind of wiggle their way into a relationship that she would have otherwise not entertained because he can get basically close to her in a way that I find a little, I don't think he quite, Jack Buchanan quite sticks the landing on not making this character seem a bit desperate and creepy. But, you know, by pretending to be specifically her hairdresser, he kind of denudes himself of any sexually intimidating aspects. She essentially sees him as a sexless person. Well, Here's my question about that. When I watched this, I thought, okay, is this a situation like Shampoo, the 75 film with Warren Beatty, where Mm -hmm. he pretends to be gay in order to bed a jillion women in Beverly Hills? And I was curious if that was part of what was going on here, that hairdressers were generally considered to be not interested in women, let's say. Yeah. And that's what he was going for. The class thing is there too, but I kept noticing this movie having unbelievably naughty things in it by today's standards that I could excuse as innocence or as double entendres. The song Trimming the Women, I was like, that's... I love that, that song. <laughs> that doesn't mean what you think beautiful. it means, guys. Here's <laughs> a lucky devil and I surely envy him for his store of inside information. He is in his glory when a lady wants a trim. To work to me is like a recreation. Oh, oh boy, what an occupation. Why waste away your youth searching for the naked truth? Why attend the college? Get your knowledge trimming the women. <laughs> I think we can be pretty sure that every single lyric in this film, that whenever there's a doubt, it's naughty. Yes. I mean, Love Parade has the great number, anything to please the queen. Yeah. So, you know, it's One Hour With You. You got to see that sometime because every single song in that is either about how great it is to have legal sex with your spouse or how much you want to cheat on your spouse. Or there's a third category in that, how, yeah, I cheated on my spouse. Would you do any different? That's the third (laughs) number. I don't think there's a single Lubitsch musical number that is not naughty, but I do think that you're getting at a slight mixed message this movie gives. And I think that this is the movie's detriment where there's so much queer undertone to the way that Buchanan dresses himself up as a hairdresser. And I do think that connection between him being a hairdresser Mm -hmm. and her kind of feeling comfortable around him, because I think there's this subtext that she assumes he's not interested in women. Mm -hmm. You know, she she comes out and she's in her negligee. She's taken off her robe because she feels like she can kind of be her basically be nude around him. And they're singing these raunchy songs in the next scene where they're basically singing about how much they basically want to bone. I do think that this gets at, especially in the Jeanette McDonald character, Helen, she seems incoherent in what she wants. And the plot is essentially driven by her character's desires and inner conflict. And I don't think that ever really resolves itself successfully. The way that I looked at these two movies is distinctly different from the way that you do. Granted, yours is probably the correct way, but I felt like in Love Parade, the intention was for Maurice Chevalier to be the main character. And it was Jeanette McDonald's first movie. So I'm sure that mm-hmm. she wasn't feeling particularly confident to stand up against this incredibly famous musical star. But I felt that he was not interesting. And maybe that's just a matter of me not being interested in or attracted to Maurice Chevalier. But I just didn't, I didn't care for him much. And then in this movie, this is much more McDonald's movie and her confidence Mm. is higher. She's much more charming. And I think she's not just more charming than herself in the prior film, but I find her more charming than Chevalier. And 
for that reason, I thought this movie did a lot more with her as an actress, also her character. I thought Buchanan was fine. I didn't really. <laughs> I mean, he, he reminded <laughs> me of a kind of handsome stiff that you would see in a comedy against somebody like the clown against Buster Keaton. You'd have like this stiff who was going to win the girl. And it's fine with me because it's not really his movie, even though it seems like it is. It's her movie. She's introduced way earlier, too. I thought of her much more as a Barbara Stanwyck screwball character. And for that reason, I liked her a lot more. I do want to separate out my feelings from the character from Je- I think Jeanette's amazing in it. Like I'm a become a big fan of hers in the five or six musicals I've seen of her. And just Jeanette is mostly known for her Nelson Eddy musicals much later. And those are just a bore. <laughs> um, and but Frico Jeanette is just that she's so great in this. And you can tell how much she's how much more confident she is to talk about the love parade briefly. I completely agree in that that was my first encounter with Maurice as well. And it took me about five films for me to go, OK. I dig this guy and I still don't really dig him in the love parade because his character, especially in hindsight, having seen the whole film is just this vessel for, I think the single most chauvinist ending of Lubitsch's whole career. The film kind of affirms his attitudes and I wasn't expecting that. I think he doesn't appeal to me for the same reason Dean Martin doesn't appeal to me. I'm just like, you look like a scumbag and I don't want to be involved with you. (laughs) Yes. Appropriately. The best, I think, Murray Chevalier musical, which in my opinion is The Merry Widow. It's one of my favorite movies. That film is entirely about how his character is the scumbag <laughs> and taking him to task for being a scumbag. I do want to shout out to Buchanan's robe with this gigantic pair of scissors on the pocket. It's so big. It's yes. like the size of his torso. She has beautiful costumes, too. I'm used to the costumes in the middle 30s, like those gowns that Ginger Rogers wears in her films. So I'm spoiled for that. But her costumes are really nice for this moment in film history. This film, too, is interesting because you still have the focus on what was pop music in the 30s. This kind of like trimming the women, you know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But the film, I think, notably ends on a meta acknowledgement that this is all based on the operetta form because Mm -hmm. you have an actual opera that you know the entire climax is premised upon this opera that mystically reflects the plot of the movie i loved that to me it was a meta acknowledgement of the way that art works for us the way that we can see ourselves in characters and use performances to make sense of our own lives and loves it weirdly ties together it manages to almost in my opinion tie together the film's thoughts on class where in the opera which is coded as this very old-timey thing right in the film it's not like some modern piece it's an old piece clearly it's written for the film but pertaining to be an old piece Mm -hmm. and you have this this acknowledgement at the end of that opera within this film the barber and the countess could never be together the countess didn't actually love the barber for who he was now that he's revealed to be a count, you know, which again exactly maps onto the plot of this movie. And, you know, and then you have a more modern attitude circa 1930 of Buchanan going, you know what, to hell with it. We love each other. Again, I keep going back to the love parade, but there's so many similarities. I loved that he forgave her for her snobbishness, which is a completely different thing than a queen acting like a queen and having to be forgiven for it. It's not the same thing. Yeah. I just appreciate that was what was going on. I also love that he didn't want to see her suffer, but was also kind of getting a kick out of how much she was into the opera that, you know, he kept smiling in between and being like, oh, no, I must go. And I thought it was a delight. I was going to bring this up earlier. I'm surprised that Lubitsch was working with a new screenwriter here because I found this movie 
really sharp and funny in a variety of different ways. The the bit when in the very beginning when she's walking along and he's chasing her and she puts the feather fan in his face. Like I thought that was just really cute. Mm-hmm. Some of her lines were just wonderful. And the sense of the women being swept away by their own situations when the Duke is explaining the opera to her and she says, oh, she'll regret it. And it's because she's transmuting her own situation onto this character in the opera. And that is an attitude and a way of endearing us to female characters in rom-coms that persists up to today. And I thought it was a fine screenplay comparatively. I'm surprised that this was a new thing for him. Either that or he did not know how poor the previous screenwriter was that he was working with. (laughs) Well, the funny thing is Vida did also work on Love Parade, but Lubitsch didn't consistently work with Hans Crawley throughout their collaboration, especially Hollywood was pressuring him to work with Hollywood screenwriters instead of the guy he brought over from Germany. But yeah, there's so many interesting threads that go into why Lubitsch was so peculiarly good at transitioning to sound, why it was so smooth for him. It's relatively rare, of course, for film directors to just immediately glom onto sound and go, wow, they understand the format. Well, the format was changing as they were trying to adapt. I mean, it's it's one of the things that's interesting to me about this period mm-hmm. in film history is how awkward it is and how you can only figure it out once. In particular, I felt like this musical was nowhere near the typical genre and format of musicals as they came to be, how MGM musicals became sort of the gold standard and how that happened over the course of the 30s is fascinating to me. And the fact that this is so early makes us go, oh, this is awkward. But it's also watching something develop in real time, watching something come to be a standard just from watching the film. Mm -hmm. That's amazing to me. I think part of what made Lubitsch so good with dialogue immediately is his better silent films. They are so quotable. Like you can watch The Doll from 1920 and immediately go, wow, like there's lines from this that I remember, even though they're just written on title cards. In Lady Windermere's Fan, he threw out all Oscar Wilde's material and with his writers wrote totally new title cards that had very little to do with the source material. And they're all incredibly witty and you can feel that transmuted here to just sound i mean it's denser of course because there's far more dialogue than in a silent film but it immediately i feel like he had a toolkit and additionally i think he was canny enough to go to basically codifying the opera to form musical for cinema like the love parade it was key in establishing certain trends that would carry forward and there's so many other musicals he didn't direct from this era that are clearly lubitsch adjacent not, no one appears at any point in any Lubitsch musical to be taking their situation that seriously. Um, so there is that lightness of touch combined with a, you know, that sort of basic format of characters expressing themselves through song that he kind of really helped pioneer too. Something that I am not sure whether this is a useful thread of conversation is... Oh, everything is. <laughs> I've maintained for a long time that stage and theater and cinema are farther apart than anyone likes to admit they are. They're farther apart than, for instance, novels Mm. and cinema, because you can see every moment of a stage performance that you're in something artificial. Whereas in a film, you sit down to kind of put yourself in for something that moves in three dimensions. Cinema is movement in space and time in a way that stage is only movement in time. So I think a lot of directors make this mistake. A lot of early directors particularly made this mistake. I can see Lubitsch falling into that a little bit, thinking that because cinema resembles theater in sort of in shallow ways, that it will make sense to just kind of plonk one into the other. But it doesn't always work. And I think that's part of why operettas became 
less popular as, you know, specific cinematic endeavors. And instead you have the film musical, which is a different form becoming more dominant mm-hmm. and prominent in the 30s up into the 40s. And w- and what would you say are the key differences between this kind of operetta style and the movie musical that would become dominant? When I think of movie musical, I immediately think of like the free unit stuff, which a lot of that is kind of review style, but a lot of it isn't as well. Or, you know, the big ones, like the big adaptations of the Broadway shows like Sound of Music, West Side Story, etc. Mm-hmm. Well, Sound of Music is a great example because it locates the play in a very specific place. I mean, it's shot on location, so you can see that you're in Salzburg. And the way that it uses the camera, especially in like the 16 going on 17 number, is you don't just have it sitting back Mm -hmm. and looking at the whole stage the way that you would have in a Chaplin film. But the other thing about musicals is that the songs, I studied this when I was looking at Cop Rock, the songs tend to illustrate a transitional emotional moment. A lot of them don't push the plot forward so much as they show, like in Singing in the Rain, when he sings You Were Meant for Me, it's, it becomes clear that his feelings for Kathy, uh, Don Lockwood, his feelings for Kathy are a lot deeper and richer than we have understood so far. And the song illustrates that. Mm. That's true for most of the Astaire Rogers musicals. Like the songs are either big dance numbers or they're meant to illustrate transitional emotional moments. And that's just not true for an operetta where you're singing for the fun of it because you enjoy singing. And so you want to tell some of the story while you're singing. Sometimes they express emotions, especially in the sort of the back third of this film. They sing to each other so freaking much. And they just can't stop expressing their emotion of, you know, feelings for each other. I love you. I love you. I love you back and forth a million times. But there's also this sort of opening number of the bride and groom exist and we are here to watch them. That's much more informational than it is emotional. The Merry Widow, which we haven't gotten to yet, but I talk about it a lot. The first half of it is essentially an operetta. And then the second half is a movie of dances. No one really sings in the back half. Um, it's all dance. And I almost feel like that's Lubitsch's transition to the movie musical that he never followed up on because he stopped making them. But that's really interesting because, you know, operettas are often thought of as the kind of link, the middle ground between opera and musical theater. I have a lot to say about this. Mm, um, please do. So opera... The way that it works is you have the arias and you have the recitative. That's not true for all opera across the world, but the arias are the songs and the recitative is like how you unspool the plot while still singing. Mm -hmm. And in musicals, generally that splits off into songs and dialogue. But in operetta, you have light numbers and you have emotional numbers. Like I'm thinking about Gilbert and Sullivan and how a lot of their songs are just frippery to talk about characterization or costumes even. They are the link, it's true. But the way that operas operate is more similar to Broadway musicals than it is to operetta, in my opinion. Where the songs exist diegetically, I always find interesting in a film like this, but this film specifically problematizes a little because, I mean, we are trained at this point to understand that when, for example, Jack Buchanan is singing over the phone to Jeanette, it's non-diegetic, right? The song, right? The conversation they're having is diegetic, but the actual singing is not necessarily happening in the world of the film. It is. You said not necessarily. And that's to me, that's the tension Mm -hmm. for, for a musical is like, it's not, I think it's in swing time when Fred Astaire sings the way you look tonight. It is diegetic. He sits down at the piano in her hotel room and sings a song to her. Yes. And 
it's definitely sort of part of the fabric of the thing, but it's because they're both performers mm -hmm. in the in the fabric of the film. So I am curious about how diegetic these songs are in this film. I believe that he is intended to be singing to her in the film, but I also think it's a pleasurable tension that he could not be singing to her in the world of the film. Exactly. And, and the point where the film puts a fine point on this is the moment when Jack Buchanan, you know, sitting and she walks by, um, he recognizes the tune she's whistling as the one that he sang to her. So that would seem to imply that this totally happened and he was singing to her over the phone. But it's also a magical world where the cuckoo clock sings the tune yes. that they're singing to each other. And I think that's a sweet, you know, testament to Lubitschland as opposed to testament to the operetta form. That clock there is a Lubitsch standby where he uses the very faces of a clock and the distance between times to tell a story and to tell us more than just, you know, those times might imply. In Trouble in Paradise, it's a great passage of this. There is some fun Lubitsch object play in this movie. He loves to externalize character behavior and plot points with objects. So, you know, how are we introduced to the marriage? Two wedding rings on a pillow. How are we introduced to the fact that the marriage isn't going to work out? It rains. Everyone has to put up these black umbrellas. Mm -hmm. How is the kind of moment at which our two leads essentially fall in love? We don't see it happen. We see a clock with those mm -hmm. bizarre brass playing cuckoo people <laughs> playing the, their melody. That kind of offloading of emotional and plot beats to objects is very typical Lubitsch. I have a few random questions about this movie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the top one on my list is, did they bone in the park? The movie suggests that they do not, but the staging suggests that they do. We're still in the pre-code era, but there was still censorship. And this is another case where I think that the idea is to plant that thought in our head while still giving the film plausible deniability that they did not, in fact, right. have sex out of wedlock. Totally. Yes. Yes, that. <laughs> another question is, why does the Duke want to marry her? At all. I mean, he is a bit of a Lubitsch archetype where it's just the suitor character who shows up in all these movies where they just pursue the lead heroine. This does reinforce the fact that within each of these movies' worlds, you know, in this case, Jeanette McDonald is like the most beautiful person in the whole world. And so, of <laughs> course, this emasculated British dandy guy would, um, would or mid-Atlantic dandy would, would follow her to the ends of the earth, even though that, what, it's like their fourth it's the fourth time she's jilted him. The way he pursues her is so lackadaisical. He's just like, oh, yes, I'll go after her yeah. in a few days. And then, oh, yes, let's go to the opera, <laughs> I suppose. I find interesting that in almost any other film, I would expect it to get serious at some point because there's almost always mm -hmm. a point at which, you know, the the seemingly ineffectual other man in this case, often, you know, in Lubitsch films, it's often the other woman in the case of like Ninochka, brings the hammer down and goes... You got to get real other person try and pursue our, our mutual love interest in our triangle we have here. There'll be consequences if you continue, but he never does. Essentially, he's forgotten at some point. As you said, the characters don't take their situations very seriously. And that was part of what I liked about this character is that he was just sort of pursuing her in between rounds of polo. I liked that very much. Yeah, it's to him. The romance is like on equal ground to probably his equestrian pursuits. Yes, yes. One thing I, I forgot, I didn't really mention earlier about this film is that it does continue something that started in Love Parade for Lubitsch, but it's just omnipresent in a lot of musicals from this era, is that feels like they're, as a part of kind of inventing the form as they go, they feel so free to just do wacky things with the musical numbers. You have a musical <laughs> number over the phone. You have a musical number where the characters are eating and just like, you know, 
You have a music a musical number delivered from a train with a choir of peasants. I could go on and on, but it feels like every musical number they're trying some new gimmick because they haven't settled upon a formula yet. Um, obviously, I think mm-hmm. "Love Me Tonight" is probably the forever will be the peak of this experimentation where that film just goes absolutely insane. But I love that Lubitsch is still trying to find new ways to sell these musical numbers as a part of this kind of fantasy land fairy tale where you know yeah why not have someone sing over a phone Mm -hmm. yeah i agree and it's a shame that mgm took that question as a license to just go bigger like more and more and more and more Mm -hmm. instead of trying new things they're just trying more things we need to talk about the rabbit of seville what actually stuck out to me is the similarities between a lot of the business jack buchanan does while failing to cut Jeanette's hair. There's even like a pose he does where he's squirting whatever, you know, on her head. Shampoo, yeah. Yeah. His pose is identical to Bugs Bunny in The Rabbit of Seville. And I'm just like, was this a reference point for The Rabbit of Seville? I maybe it was. I feel sure that it was. And I only say that because of knowing that Clark Gable munching on carrots and it happened one night was a reference for Bugs. Mm-hmm. So Yes, I am sure that that is what happened. <laughs> At that point, Buchanan is, you know, his character, the Count Rudy, is basically playing a character of someone who's almost like trolling her. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, he's slightly, slightly nagging her. But it's I do think he sells it, actually. I, I do like Buchanan as the as, as the rascal. This might also be a good excuse to bring up a line that I shamefully didn't bring up during our discussion on the gender and class element of this, which is when Buchanan is challenged by Jeanette. Uh, he puts on his you know barber's robe and says, I am not a man. I have so many questions about that. I noted it specifically, but it's I partly think that all of the meanings of this sequence can't necessarily be parsed out because we don't live in 1930. Yes. I wonder what being a man means in the context of 1930, because that's being a man changes, you know, Mm -hmm. by the decade these days. So who knows what he meant then? I think the question is whether. He meant, I'm not a man because now I'm a servant. I'm not a man because now I'm a queer hairdresser. I'm not a man because I'm not responsible and aggressive. I'm not a man because I'm not a wolf. Hmm. To me, it it seems like there's a bunch of societal mores context that's simply missing for us. This is a common refrain throughout the show is that so much of what we're doing here is, you know, we have obviously... I mean, I've had my fair share of historians on the show. I've tried to do my homework on the show. But there is a certain point at which, to a certain point, we are projecting our values on this. And we are projecting mm-hmm. our own readings on, on all these films. So in a case like this, where you have stuff there, which, you know, I question how coherent it is about masculinity, femininity, gender roles, and expectations, and how that feeds into class and how different classes kind of almost dehumanizing each other. So much of that is maybe us looking, you know, at this from a perspective of, okay, it's 2023. We have a certain, at least we among good faith, generally left a center society <laughs> have a certain way of uh, seeing gender and the mechanics of that. How much is us like imprinting on it almost like a, a framework that is completely alien to us? 
I also thought that about the royalty situation here, because obviously this is 1930. This is after anti-Semitism had started to rise in Germany. It's also before the abdication crisis, which is something that I was thinking about as I was watching this. I went, oh, I wonder if this is related to Wallace Simpson and, and short, but no, it's not. And the way that you could just sort of have counts and countesses and dukes kind of scattered about Europe without it having any political meaning whatsoever, mm-hmm. it's kind of nice, but you also have to put yourself in that mindset first. Even like the specifics of the count here, Lubitsch would, I mean, he makes hay out of abdicating royalty repeatedly throughout his career, but the specific archetype that the countess actually embodies of this, this tension between she's an aristocrat, right? She's one step away from royalty. Uh, and yet she's a pauper. She's both a prince and a pauper. And <laughs> that is an architect that Lubitsch repeats extensively. This kind of idea that in the modern capitalistic age, essentially, the idea of royalty is becoming essentially meaningless. So you have these people who have titles waltzing around Europe with no money. And especially post-World War One, that's all the way that royalty was perceived in Europe, I'm sure it was 100% different. And some of this context we're missing mm. because putting ourselves in 1930 is extremely difficult, but some of it we can kind of guess at. Yeah. Post-war context is so important too, because this time we're in that interwar period where so much of that old social order, so many monarchies died in the First World War. <laughs> and exactly. no coincidence that I think the first instance of of the kind of disgraced prince who is living, in this case, in a shabby apartment being a plot point is in The Oyster Princess, which was in 1919, in Lubitsch's movies, at least. So that tracks very well. This also interfaces with Lubitsch's, another refrain of his, which is these made up European countries. Yeah. Yes. It's never said what country our countess is from. I got the vague impression just from the set decoration that the wedding sequence and the duke was sort of bavarian Mm. (laughs) like just based on almost nothing i was like okay so germany and then we're gonna go to monte carlo which is just fun and and decadent and i did love in the opera the they sing he's a prince he's a prince he's a prince of france like for some reason being a prince of france was very emphasized (laughs) (laughs) i thought that was delightful Yeah, it's like vaguely like Central European, I'd say, you know, this Mm -hmm. kind of wedding, at least kind of looks like could be Vienna, could be Bavaria, could be a few other places. Um, Really, it's as you mentioned, it's Lubitsch land. And even Monte Carlo has, I'm convinced, almost other than the fact that there's casinos, it's completely nominal. It's just a stand in for Mm -hmm. whatever city state you want, where the laws are maybe a bit more lax. You can do a bit more naughty stuff. Mm -hmm. It's a very small problem, but I was annoyed that this was named Monte Carlo because it doesn't do justice to what happens in the movie. Uh, I think Trim and the Women is my preferred title for this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because that's the real, that's the real conflict here. Satisfy the craving, finger-waving, trimming the women. So, junk film. Your book on trash cinema, bad movies, junk movies. Part of why I was excited to have you on the show is uh, it's rare to find someone who has made an attempt to really, in a serious good faith way, tackle the appeal of bad cinema. And I I will say that as a lover of bad films, your description of junk movies as perhaps a successful record of an attempt to make a film. Uh, I think that that sums up my feelings on why I love films like Plan 9 from Outer Space. Visits. That would indicate visitors. Street Fighter the movie. Colonel, have you lost your mind? No. You've lost your balls. The Room and, most controversially, The Rise of Skywalker. Somehow Palpatine returned. 
I'm going to assume the audience has not read this book. Our audience probably doesn't have a ton of overlap with people who love cult no. Ed Wood movies. But my goal is to make that overlap larger with this podcast because it is absolutely something that should be learned and loved. So what appeals to you about bad movies? Why should we watch movies that are nowhere near as good as the average movie we're talking about on this podcast? Well... One of the most important reasons to watch bad movies is to have a sense of the full spectrum available of film. If you only watch good movies, you don't have any sense of how bad they can actually get. And I say this as someone who is, you know, several interviews deep on this book with people who are not generally familiar with bad films. So they wind up being like, oh, Quigley Down Under, that movie was a piece <laughs> of crap, wasn't it? And I'm like, well, uh, you need to see Manos the Hands of Fate. So I think it's incredibly important to have some perspective on what's good and what's bad. In the same way, I've encountered a lot of bad movie fans who have never even heard of Ernst Lubitsch. So I feel like you need mm -hmm. the full the full range uh, in order to be a useful critic of this art form. What we enjoy about them varies wildly. I think for a lot of people, they enjoy... Uh, looking down on the movies and saying, ah, ha, ha, I could do better than this. And in some cases, they're actually correct because the movies are just that bad. But I also think bad movies often show the audience something that they have not seen before and or can't see in mainstream cinema. One thing that I love about bad movies is that they are always surprising, which is not a quality that I can ascribe to mainstream cinema, especially for the last... Mm, 10, 15 years, it seems like we're going through the motions of Save the Cat and haven't thought about making our movies a little bit more bonkers. And bad movies always have these unpredictable aspects that just make me sit up and go, oh, I'm watching a movie instead of, oh, I'm a bowl of oatmeal. That is the main reason that I think it's fun to watch. Generally, we, you know, we are trained to approach movies as essentially delivery systems for, I'd say the most mainstream idea is story, right? There are delivery systems for stories. Or, you know, if you want to get more into the cinephile world, moods, emotions, form, right? But I think none of those really get at the implications of what truly, I think, enjoying bad movies kind of entails, where you're not engaging with the work on its own terms. And I mean that in a good way. You are engaging with the work as an object to be studied that often forms a story about its own making. Wow. That's so brilliantly said and no one has ever said it to me that way. But that's exactly right. A piece of cinema that is of high enough quality will force you to engage with it on its terms instead of your own. And bad movies just don't have the integrity to do that. Just, oh, wow, Devin, so beautifully said. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I would like to also like point out um, my sometimes podcast partner, Will Ross, create a letterbox list where they uh, lay out kind of a thesis <laughs> of the anti-masterpiece. Astonishing works of art in spite of a distinct lack of conventional competence in the part <laughs> of their makers. They challenge the notion that mastery is necessary to produce essential work. And, and for me, I mean, it's so hard to concoct that consciously. I think the only work I've ever seen that actually does that and pulls it off is Gareth Marenghi's Dark Place, where I think part of what makes that show work is that every single shot feels so thoughtful in that they're not telling the story of the, the shot. They're telling the story of how this fictional crew screwed up the shot. That's the story. <laughs> That's why I love yeah. Rise of Skywalker, because that film is not the story of whoever Ray and 
Poe and all that. That film is the story of a craven corporate board shooting themselves in the foot repeatedly. Uh, that is the movie to rise of Skywalker. That's why it's beautiful to me. You use Plan 9 in the book as a record of its own making. Plan 9 to me is like the record of like a scruffy, doe-eyed, you know, Ed Wood, you know, who we all love Ed Wood because he is so sincere and s- believes in himself. If Ed Wood is like, you know, you can compare the, the Tim Burton movie, Ed Wood, which I think transmutes that into a narrative very well. but. Uh, you know, the narrative equivalent of Rise of Skywalker or these corporate bad films is like something like Robert Altman's Shortcuts, just a cynical look into how awful human beings are to each other. It's a different way to approach the cinematic and just uh, you can obviously expand this to all art where you are, to steal your phrase, it's a record of people making it. So you can watch a scene from The Room or, or Plan 9 and just deconstruct the thought process yes, for the people who made I, it. That's all quite right. I appreciate your generosity toward Ed Wood, and that's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> See, I'm just thinking about Will's list. Will's list has the following films. There's actually four Ed Wood films on it. Glenn or Glenda, Bride of the Monster, Plan 9, Night of the Ghoul. There's The Treasure Planet. If you've seen that one, it's the first Bulgarian animated film. I'm in the midst of watching it, actually, thanks to you. Oh, boy. Yes, it is my favorite bad movie. Inexhaustible. Street Fighter, the movie, The Room, After Last Season, Birdemic, Love on the Leash, Food Fight, and Talking Cat. A Talking Cat? No, no. <laughs> no, no, no. That move, no. Uh-uh. Will describes that one as the thin red line of bad movies. <laughs> oh, that's... No, sorry. I would say that my defense of a talking cat is this, because here to me is the narrative behind this movie, <laughs> is that the talking cat is made by pornographers. Yes, it is. And, and my favorite thing about that film, although I do love the rhythm of the weirdly high number of establishing shots, I think that's, to me, I just find it inherently pleasing, but... Almost every scene involving humans in that movie, instinctively, everyone I've watched it with has asked at least once, is this about to turn to a porno? (laughs) Because it's like watching someone have to fight his trained instincts, the director, right? So the film constantly feels like this film for children, (laughs) I should add. I mean, it's ostensibly for children. Yeah. Is... It feels like someone trying to make a film in a different language they don't speak because you can feel David Dakota's instincts kick in. It's like that that toilet in The Simpsons where it flushes one way and then it reverses. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's that in movie form. So that's my defense of a talking cat. That's a great metaphor. I mean, see, part of me wants to say that. The people that you watch it with are telling on themselves because that house is used in pornos. So probably what they're thinking is they see the interiors and they're like, I've seen this interior before. Like the way characters interact in that movie, their their willingness to strip off and go in the pool and stuff. And the way the characters look at each other with fire in their eyes in just the most mundane of circumstances. Uh, Have you seen After Last Season? Oh, yeah. That to me is accidental avant-garde. There are people who think it's deliberate avant-garde and... I don't know what to make. I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. (laughs) And I've had a lot of conversations about that one. And the thing that I find funniest about it is having to steer people away from it who aren't ready. Yes. It's like like an advanced bad movie watch. If you haven't been prepared by watching a whole bunch of other bad movies, you should not see after last season. It's like a masochistic exercise watching it, isn't it? It's really difficult alone, masochistic alone. The breaking point, I mean, uh, we actually did an episode on our old podcast about it because Brahm, who is a, a perennial on this podcast, suggested it. 
And my breaking point was when they had the conversation about what what was it? Um, driving through a town. <laughs> I've been through city. that. I've been to that town, but never through it, or through that town, but never to it. It's like a film with no filter. Yes, where there's no editorial control over what the characters say or how. It's amazing, and also the one harsh light they had on everything. I. I, I- I mean, I'm not even a cinematographer and it pains me to watch the lighting in that movie. And I just can't even imagine someone who's actually trained watching this movie and not just falling to your knees and doing a Darth Vader howl because it's so the the lighting is horrific in that movie. All the things that I teach my students not to do are on display. Yes. And that coming full circle is exactly why Plan 9 is such a useful movie, because watching bad movies can be an incredibly useful exercise in understanding what not to do. I also think they can be a good almost way to look at people stumble into interesting stuff occasionally. Yes. I think Birdemic's a good example of this where I truly think like the opening credits of Birdemic get into a weird lo-fi tonal space that I've never seen a movie quite do. And I've always stuck in my head is like, I'm going to keep that in my back pocket when I need something <laughs> that weird and off-putting. Or the <laughs> ending where it's just the birds don't fly away. They're static on the screen. <laughs> yes. There's yep. so many facets to this. Or um, Street Fighter, the movie, is a good example where that film is accidentally a great satire about the way that even the most upstanding institutions can fall into fascism. Jean-Claude Van Damme plays a, essentially a, a UN general, but he just goes on a power trip and helps essentially destroy part of the small country uh, trying to take down this warlord because they're both equally egotistical. And I don't think this was intended at all by anyone involved in this movie. But I I love that the film is this parable of the dangers of falling victim to, uh, you know, your own cult of personality. (laughs) She's speaking of kind of absurd satires. I was curious about your reading of Showgirls Mm. because I can't think of a, a movie that's been more differently received by different people. Mm-hmm. I'll admit that when I watched Showgirls for the first time, I thought it was, it's Starship Troopers in that it takes the form of a type of film that Paul Verhoeven doesn't really like and just <laughs> uses that to skewer it. In the case of Starship Troopers, it's a fascist propaganda film. In its presentation, it is framed as that, except it's Paul Verhoeven t- skewering that in the belly. And I, I think Showgirls is basically just maximalist, erotic, all about Eve type film that Verhoeven just does all he can to, to undercut. Part of the reason that Showgirls initially failed, in my opinion, is that Americans are really weird about sex and we don't know that we are. We have this weird Puritan streak that has never really gone away in 400 years. Verhoeven is very skilled, in my opinion, at making movies that are equally entertaining and satirical. And when he did this with violence, it was easily accepted with Robocop Mm -hmm. and Total Recall because the violence... Violence is fine with Americans, but sex is not fine with Americans. So when he does the same thing he's been doing, but he does it with sex, it's like, oh, whoa, no, can't do that. I think it's a really rich film. I don't think Showgirls is a deliberately bad movie. I don't think it deliberately sabotages itself. I think what Verhoeven is doing is a little more subtle than that. I have found that people who set out to make enjoyably bad movies fail 99.9% of the time. The mm-hmm. company, The Asylum, makes movies like Sharknado and Sharkpuss and other shark hybrid movies. And they're so cynical that they're not enjoyable. Uh, they're just really turgid. Yeah. Like, there's no inspiration behind the badness. Yes, that's right. I think you have to have a certain level of a naive wish to create art in order to create an enjoyably bad movie. So if you're going for the joke of being a bad movie, it's not going to come off. 
it has to be unintentional. Otherwise, it won't work. Your point about the importance of essentially wanting to make a good thing. I think it, it is really central to, uh, you know, what makes most bad movies work. I always hesitate to make blanket statements because there is the occasional exception to everything. Like Dark Place to me is the big one where I'm like, yeah, that fully works as, a, you know, I think a really set of talented filmmakers making something bad. Whatever alchemy they had worked. But generally, you know, you, you got to have that base impulse that we can all relate to, right? That sense of you tried and you failed, but in your failure, there is stuff that is valuable. One of the best things I've ever written is a sentence in the Plan 9 monograph where I say, making things is the second most powerful way to keep ourselves from the void. The value in what is created in a bad movie is multifarious. And to pin it down to, this is valuable because it's a teaching moment. This is valuable because I enjoy laughing at things. This is valuable because someone made something and I am watching the fruit of their labor. It's so many different ways to do it and to pin it down to like Pauline Kael in particular has this one way of looking at bad movies and I'm, I'm yeah. not into it. I think that there's this um, very fine line between, you know, an empathetic appreciation and mocking. And this is where I actually fell off the room train, for example, mm. where I was early on in the rooms kind of cycle. I think I first watched in 2005 or so it kicked open a door in my head to, to borrow a phrase used elsewhere. At around the time the disaster artist, the, the movie came out, that movie, I put negative feelings towards because it feels like some very, you know, rich, successful filmmakers just kind of punching down. I, I haven't watched the room since that movie came out. I don't want to become that person that is just laughing because Tommy Wiseau is worthy of ridicule, which he kind of is, I, you know, he's not a very good person by all accounts, but I don't want to be part of that mob laughing at the, at the freak. The bad movie community falls into maybe three or four categories. And one big one is the mockers, the people who just watch bad movies because they want to make fun of them. And they'll make fun of everything from, you know, somebody's lisp to, uh, a boom mic appearing in the frame. Yeah. And to me, one of those things is in fact risible. Another is not. I don't think that's a very profitable way to look at bad movies because it doesn't engage with the film. It just looks down at it. In terms of The Disaster Artist, the, the book, if you haven't read it, is phenomenal. Part of why I think The Disaster Artist book is, is, is so good is that it's so full of that empathy for Tommy. Greg is very frank about all the th things that Tommy did that aren't good, but there's so much empathy for whatever the hell Tommy has going on and so much curiosity from Greg. Greg described it in the book as Tommy's goal was to become world famous, to travel around with his film and to be loved by millions. And he achieved that. Mm -hmm. The actual human being, Tommy was aside. I don't think it's fair that people laugh at him, but mm -hmm. I do think that laughing all the way to the bank is a valid way to receive bad movie attention. He's he's out there somewhere doing his thing and we're just living in that world. Whereabouts can we find your book? All the people who want to read it, um, where's the best place to access it and to uh, get you compensated for that access? <laughs> the best place to get it is Amazon. And I know that's not an answer that a lot of people like, but that's the truth. I normally say that you can PayPal me $17 and I'll send you a copy with stickers that's signed. But because this is going to a Canadian audience, that would be that would bankrupt me <laughs> if, I, if I only charge two bucks for shipping to Canada. So if you desperately want a signed copy, Canadians, email me and we'll work something out.
Thank you so much for thinking of us Canadians on this. Um, I think the majority of the podcast audience is American just because you have so, such a numerical superiority over us, meager amount of Canadians. <laughs> but it's it's one of the few books I've ever read that actually tackles the question of how we can empathetically and constructively approach differently competent cinema. <laughs> if that's something that you either like already or want to get into, read this book, watch the works of Ed Wood, uh, watch The Treasure Planet. That's my own personal recommendation of this, the most obscure of the horrible, great movies. I'll finish by asking you, if you had to recommend a starter pack of bad cinema, are there any works you would point people to as ways into this kind of way of looking at cinema? Plan 9 is really the one. Mm-hmm, I agree. It's There's a reason that it's referred to as the Citizen Kane of bad cinema. That's that's very reasonable for a bunch of reasons. And if you can find a movie called They Saved Hitler's Brain, it is a very fun, terrible 50s, actually 60s, a sci-fi fantasy, some kind of mashup in which the Hitler's head is in a jar. It's a treat, especially because it was completed in two different time periods and it's very obvious which is which. So thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been an absolute pleasure on this smoky, smoky climate change day. Thank you so much for brightening our orange weather. Oh, thank you, Devin. This was a real treat. Next week, Jonathan McGriss joins us to discuss The Smiling Lieutenant. Head over to ErnstCast.com for information as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubitsch Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. Sophia Yoon was our dialogue editor for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you happen to use. It helps other people find our podcast and therefore find Ernst Lubitsch. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 